0: Judges chapter 1. So if you'll turn in your Bibles with me. We're going to read the entire first introduction because Judges has two introductions, two conclusions, six major judges, six minor judges, and one anti-judge, Abimelech, and they all point us to Jesus. And so it helps. We're going to look at the the big overview of the, the first introduction this morning. And so this is Israel's failure that's what this summarizes and so let's read it and we'll see what God has to teach us today this is the word of our God after the death of Joshua the people of Israel inquired of the Lord who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them the Lord said Judah shall go up Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek, and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and Parasites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and cut, caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Sheshai and Ayuman and Talmai. And from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-sephir. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath-sephir and captures it, I will give him Aksah, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Axa's daughter, for a wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled near with the people. And Judah went with Simeon his brother and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction So the name of of the city was called Hormah, which means destruction Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron and Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord is with them, and the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city formerly was formerly Luz, And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of or in its village or Tanakh, and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibleam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put, on the, the, Can- they put the Canaanites to force labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them zebulon did not zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor asher did not drive out the inhabitants of akko or the inhabitants of sidon or alab or oxib or of helba or afik or of rehob so the asherites lived among the canaanites the inhabitants of the land for they did not drive them out naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to force the labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Ares and Aijalon and Shalbim, But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upward. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And this is God's word. Uh, It is true and trustworthy. Let's pray. Our Father God, I pray you would open our eyes to see wondrous things about your character and your will and your ways here this morning, that they are for our good. And so even in this history that seems so foreign, I pray you would show us the love of Christ, the faithfulness of Christ, who is faithful even when we are not. So satisfy us today with your steadfast love so that we might arise heartily, ready, and willing to live for him. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, this is a hard passage to preach. (laughs) There's a lot going on. There's a lot of geography. Uh, Americans are notorious for being really bad at geography. Uh, That's why we have TV shows dedicated to showing how fifth graders are smarter than grown adults who've been through this stuff. And this isn't your typical devotional literature either. I mean, when you... When was the last time you heard a music team interrupt the singing to read, the men of Judah took Jerusalem, set it to the sword, and set the city on fire? Right. There's no amens to that. All right. So John, there you go. <laughs> music team goals. See, part of the problem is there's violence, there's wickedness, there's conquest. There's, you know, if you are living in a war zone, that, that you'd relate to this more, or if you were... In, uh, in the military, maybe you'd find some interesting things about this, but what it's showing you is a God who is a warrior, a, a dread warrior, the God who arises in justice and anger, and the wicked melt like wax before him and his armies as he sends his people to be an instrument of justice in his hand. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But The problem is in our culture is we don't, like, we don't talk about God being a warrior very much. It's just not in the... You don't hear that on Christian radio. We'll hear about having meeting earth like a sloppy wet kiss but not the the Jesus with the eyes aflame and a sword coming out of his mouth calling the nations to repentance. And so we got to ask what's how is this helpful? And what's really helpful is chapter 2 verses 1 to 5 that gives you the the filter on how to read everything we just went through. That. The God sends a messenger, an angel, and the God who speaks is the God who rescued Israel by grace and grace alone. He brought them up out of Egypt as a warrior. I mean, this is the God who saved them by grace violently. Yahweh is the Lord who pulled in the chaotic waters of the sea to go to war to defend Israel against the powers of Egypt. I mean, if you remember the story when the 10 plagues, it's like creation itself were were God's instruments of warfare. The rivers ran red, the frogs came up, the locusts invaded, uh, the flies, there were plagues, there were boils, there was hail. I mean, all these natural things all came falling down on Egypt because God is a warrior. Who who defends those whom he loves. And the final proof that that Yahweh is a warrior was the death of the firstborn. And all that was to rescue weak and helpless Israel who was subject to forced labor that God had adopted as his son simply because he loves them. And so the question of our text is will. Israel now sent into the promised land, will they obey? Will they hear God's voice and do everything He commands? That's the question for you and I today. Right when when God when we read the scriptures wherever you might find them, because all scriptures are God breathed and useful for training and teaching and rebuking and correcting. This is God speaking to you today. Will you listen? Holy partially? Will you appear successful but hide all the ugly stuff? You know, what level of obedience are you at? I mean, that's what our passage is going to get us to ask, because the picture we have is a God who saves us by grace, and because I've saved you, I want you to obey my voice. How did that work in, in the days of the judges? And the answer is not very well. So we're going to jump into this. This is the first introduction. It sets the trajectory for the whole book. And just like the book that starts out so promising with the obedience of Judah, it has a tragic ending. The whole book starts out well. Israel disobeys and it ends poorly. And so that's the, the direction we're going to go in this sermon. My sermon's going to start out well and end poorly. <laughs> so just to help you, it has a promising start and a tragic ending. And so let's look at success. We'll look at failure and then how God redeems failures, um, how God resolves the tension here. First thing we have in in verses 1 to 26, it's the record of of hopeful success of Judah, this one particular tribe, obeying, doing what God told them to do, which is take the land that was given to them, drive out their Canaanite neighbors. and So you can just go down the list of... This is how Judah was successful. He took his part of Jerusalem. The Benjamites failed to take their part. Judah was successful. You're supposed to compare them. Uh, Curious Zephyr falls. Uh, Caleb is from the tribe of Judah. And we're, we're going to talk more about this on Palm Sunday, what, what that whole random story is about. It, it, it could, we can tie that in later. You have a whole city that's completely destroyed. Zephath is renamed utterly destroyed. Hormah. then Gaza falls with Ashkelon and Ekron. And you got the whole summary of the reason Judah was successful is because God was with him. Yahweh was with him. And then you also get Joseph's partial success. Joseph pulls a, a page straight from Joshua's playbook. The way they take Bethel is the way that Jericho was taken. You're supposed to compare the two. Right, so they bribe a guy to show them a way into the city. They make a deal with him. We won't kill you if you let us in. They enter, to, to deal kindly is to enter into a covenant. And so they're breaking God's law. So this is partial success here. But either way, Joseph takes Bethel. This man did not have saving faith, so he's different than Rahab. So this is less than what happened in Jericho because this guy leaves and he goes and sets up another pagan city to continue his unbelief, idolatry, and cruelty. And all that, that partial obedience in there with Joseph sets you up for the, the failure in verses 27 to 36. And we'll get there. But what we have is this promising start with Judah. And we've got to ask, what does that have to do with you and I? How does Judah's faithfulness the successful violence against Canaanite armies, empowered by Yahweh, the divine warrior, uh, how does that help us follow Jesus? One, I think, is to start here is to recognize when Judah starts this conquest, he's continuing what Joshua did, but this is the culmination of the Lord's patience. This is I know we come to the violent passages and we, want, we're, we don't want to, it's just hard to get our minds wrapped around that God would say, destroy a, destroy a city and everyone in it. Even if we know in our minds that, that nobody's innocent, it's still hard to get our hearts wrapped around it. And the, what's helpful is you come to this passage and recognize that Judah is an, a non-innocent instrument of judgment. Sent 400 years, God waited 400 years before bringing down judgment on these people. So just think about that. In the midst of child sacrifice, uh, sexual immorality, chopping off thumbs and toes, the idolatry, ignoring the God who made them, right? real harm. horrific harm. I mean, this is there's abuse, oppression. And God patiently waited until their sin was complete. And there were over 400 years of opportunity to change and repent. And when they did not change, this is all part of God's plan. He, he takes their kingdom and gives it into the hands of his people, Israel. The same pattern is gonna to happen to Israel later when they act the same way, when they act like their pagan neighbors. God's gonna take their kingdom and send them among the nations into exile. But what it does is as we start, you got to ask that question. If God is that patient, he's slow to anger with real and horrific harm. How patient are you with those who have offended you? All right. In our culture, lives are ruined in a day for somebody misspeaking or being, or being taken out of context. And we say, why haven't you obeyed like us? Just in a day. And the Lord, who was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, the divine warrior kept his sword sheets for over 400 years as he provided sunlight, as he provided rain, as he patiently bore up. He stored up wrath for them, but it was, it was a patient waiting. How patient are you? It's, there's more... Issues, I mean, if you have more questions about this, feel free to ask. It's a complex answer to, to, to come up with. But the point is, Judah is sent by God to do justice. It's not a command to be repeated by the church, even though it was, horrifically. Um, in our own history, George Washington heard, heard sermons about the, the evils of the Canaanite British, who will rise up <laughs> and fight for us. Get them, George even while the British pastors were saying the same things about us Americans. So the point is, how you read this matters, and this is, this is history. It's not, it's not telling you to go rise up against your neighbors. This is telling you what the Lord has done as the divine warrior through Judah in a particular time, in a particular place. The Lord was patient with Canaanites, and it's setting you up for the need for the Lord to be patient with his own people with us now you move from there and then you look at the success of judah what do we learn from judah's success and one of the themes of judges is unity and so when judah teams up with his brother simeon and the outsider kenites it's setting you up to see that god's people are successful when they live together by faith when they go to war against sin and evil by faith. Um, Judah and Simeon work together and succeed. The Kenites are a model of faith as they, the nations come under the tribe of Judah and dwell in peace and harmony. Right? They, they, God is not opposed to the nations. He welcomes them in. The Kenites, Moses' father-in-law, right, that he, they're not Jewish. All right. And this is is what I want you to see. This is a counter-cultural approach to religion because what it's teaching us is we are called to follow Jesus together, not alone. We have an incredibly individualistic approach to spirituality that what matters is my spirituality. I'm spiritual. And what Judah is modeling is he takes Simeon, and Simeon comes along Judah and they work together to be faithful, to obey God's commands. It's modeling the, the the later picture of what the New Testament's gonna pick up on. God's people are strongest when they work together. Right? That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ crucified alone, but you're saved into a family to go to war against sin, to build Christ's church. God's gift to you in your war against sin and selfishness and suffering is the people in this room. All right. and I don't think it's a stretch to, to think about Ephesians 3, that Paul prayed for the church that we together with all the saints might understand how wide and long and high Christ's love is for his people. Uh, that's why I Pastor Ralph Davis would say that um, getting a grip on the staggering love of the limitlessness of christ, the limitless limitlessness of christ's love, that's a tongue twister. you can't do that in blissful isolation All right. and what really helps me tie this together and I want to see it, this is in the text, Judah is the most important tribe um, of the twelve tribes of Israel and They take the most insignificant tribe, the weakest tribe, the smallest tribe, militarily Simeon, to go to war together. I mean, it could be practical because they're neighbors, but it's also this picture of the strong bringing the weak to go to battle against evil together. He enlists the aid of the weakest brother to experience God's strength and power and success. And so you can take that same model. That's what Jesus does. The lion of the tribe of Judah, King Jesus, enlists sinners, his enemies, the weak, to build his church, to be his representatives, to take the glory of God to the ends of the earth. (laughs) When when Jesus wants to build his church, he puts his spirit in you and he says, go. You who were weak, you who are not perfect, you who are not Jesus. All right. Or 1 Corinthians 12, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you, because all members of the church, all believers, are members of one another. See, the the pattern here with Judah and Simeon is repeated over and over again throughout the scriptures. It's gospel humility that I can't live this life alone. It's the upside-down kingdom that God chooses the weak to shame the strong. And so, if you want to know why join a church, why be a part of a church, it's because you're stronger in Christ together than alone. Right? Because, I mean, I think we've all, there's only one brave heart, Mel Gibson, and he died alone. <laughs> right? I mean, we, the, the picture of this lone warrior Christian out on the field of battle, Judah's a tribe, they're a group of people, they're working together. The, it's not possible. So the message of, of Judges is that sin is a power and it, it dwells within everybody and it will overwhelm you if you do not work together by faith. All right? And so the question is how do you cultivate it? Well, Judah and Simeon went to battle together, they lived together, they camped together, they went to war together, they bled together, they cried together. I mean, this is part of you use all that military ter- uh, ter- terminology. But the point is, is they followed Yahweh and they kept his commands together. And so some of us are facing intense battles against sin, addiction, loneliness, and despair. And the question is, are you demanding your church to help you with that? Those of you who are weak, you have the right to demand the strong to come alongside you because we're part of the church. Right. someone who will gospel you, tell you who you are in Christ and remind you and help you f- remember what you've forgotten, somebody who will pray with you, somebody who will help you know Jesus better, uh, somebody who will come alongside you other than just on Sunday. Because if you're going to war, you don't just show up for the battle. You train together. You work together. You sweat together. Right? It's It's saying, do you have... Do you have someone else in your life to walk alongside as you follow Jesus together? And so Judah, the picture here is he enlisted the help of the weak and the outsider by faith. And he was successful because of his faith. It's a promising start. And his success is all grounded You see this in verse 19. This is what biblical success is, and I think this is really helpful. Is is the Lord with you or not? The Lord is with Judah, yet they could not take the plains because the Canaanites had iron chariots, and by faith Judah went to fight. And there are commentators who would say Judah just didn't trust enough. Um, I'm not sure if I agree with them. It says the Lord was with him. It's just a a statement of common sense. I think this is evidence that you can't make this stuff up. If you want to sell your God as the God who can smoke all of your enemies, you don't put a statement like this right in the middle of a battle account. Say, the Lord was with us, but we didn't finish the job yet. And so, take that, let me encourage you. Something happens as Christians when we wonder... Why there are battles we just cannot win. Right, we wonder why the Christian life isn't moving from victory to victory. We assume if the Lord is with us, we're going to go from victory to victory. Right, we're going to move on up and sing with the Jeffersons. Things are going to get better. And the picture here is what makes a successful follower of Jesus. is the Lord is with you, you are following his commands, and you're not doing it alone. And if the Lord is with you by faith, that's successful. Use Pastor Jim's sermon, 1 John 1. Do you have fellowship with God? Because when you have fellowship with God through faith in Christ, you have fellowship with one another. That's the biblical picture of success. Are we getting along? Are we growing to like each other? Are we not just legging each other but working together? to make Christ known amongst one another and among the nations. All right. See, the successful people of God are those who smell like God is with them. The aroma of Christ is here. Steve Brown likes to say, you people smell like Jesus. <laughs> All right, you smell good. If you smell like God is working, because he's here. And that's the astonishing claim of the gospel. You either have him, Or you do not, but the only way you have him is through faith. in Judah's long descendant, Jesus, crucified, dead, and buried for you. See, what it starts out, I know as I read this, it's, it's a military account. It sounds like success, strength, strength, strength. Judah's faithfulness turns out to be a dependent faithfulness. Because his strength comes with the Lord's presence. God fought for him. So, spiritual success is following Jesus together, not alone, depending on God's presence with us. Will you obey his voice? And the answer is from the rest of the tribes. We're going to second point. As you look at the disobedience, from verses 27 to 36, you have theological, geographical uh, accusations of disobedience. It's it's doing theology by saying, you just didn't take your territory. You did not do what God commanded. And it's, it's repetitive because it's driving home, driving home the point that's gonna come. And here's the point. Is obedience is not, e- disobedience is easier than obedience. <laughs> right? It's just so much easier to just do what I want. To, and pretend like I'm doing okay. Right? Because you look at this, they're taking the promised land in the sense that they're moving in. But they haven't listened to God's voice. It says over and over again, they did not drive them out, they did not drive them out, they did not drive out the Canaanites. And then it gets worse because they start subjecting the Canaanites to forced labor. And that I don't know if that rings a bell, but it should ring a bell in your ears. Where did Israel come from? From Pharaoh who subjected them to forced labor. And so now you have God's people moving into Canaan and treating the Canaanites like oppressed slaves. The the oppressed have become the oppressor. Israel is acting like Pharaoh. The victim is now becoming the victimizer. So it's not just that they're not listening to God's word, they're, they're even spiraling more. Some of them moved in and did nothing. They said, we're here, that's good enough. Some of them moved in and they clearly had the strength to kick out their Canaanite neighbors as they were commanded to do. And they chose not to. They chose to use their power to be served. And so that's what you see here. You you see three different ways of taking it easy when it comes to obedience. It's so much easier to disobey. When God says, love me and love your neighbor, it's a lot easier to not try. And there's a reason C.S. Lewis said that, uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis, that uh, nobody's ever really tried Christianity and found it easy. Right? Nobody said this is a piece of cake. It's those who try Christianity that out and find out this is, this is war. <laughs> this is difficult. Because right? look at the three ways of disobeying. I just don't want to do what you want, told me to do, God. <laughs> Some of these tribes just moved in. Some of them moved in out of God's command, but then they didn't do anything else. They didn't finish the job. This is, this is partial obedience while pretending to be successful. Maybe they didn't obey because they said, well, they're too big and scary and I can't. Right? This is like going to war against anything, any addiction. You're saying, God, I, don't, I can't obey you. It's too hard. Or there's that notorious thing where I have the ability to do it, the strength to do it, and I just choose not to. And in fact, I'm going to use the God given power I have to take advantage of everyone else around me and enslave the Canaanites and hurt my. And that I am here to be served, not to serve. And so this is humbling. But this is setting you up for the angel of the Lord to come and say, What have you done? Are you listening? And so maybe this is a good application point here for you. As Christians, we can be successful in all kinds of ways. We can look successful on the outside. You can, you can have a lot of Bible commands memorized. And what, what the angel of the Lord is going to say, what matters is, are you obeying, obeying Jesus' voice? Because you can be successful in business, finance, family. You could have a full bank account, have a family that loves each other. You can have good friends. You, you could have a spouse that, that loves you. You get along. You can be seemingly in control of your world, and God could still be mad at you because you're not listening to his voice. Right. You can be successful and be a spiritual failure. That, that's the humbling picture here. So you had a promising start and, and it's coming to a sad, crashing end. But the, the options are, it's either God's will be done, leaning on God's strength like Judah, or my will be done as I see fit to do what, whatever I feel like, pictured by these tribes. Right. And so the goal is, of course the goal would be to be perfect but we're human beings and we're sinners but the goal really is is complete obedience where we don't look at god's law and say i like this part and i don't like this part so i'm just going to do the parts i like that's the goal and these tribes have fallen well short so we're left with what's the big deal what how does god respond to his people not obeying we've seen how he responds to the canaanites and their wickedness. What about his people? And if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, the angel of the Lord goes from Gilgal to Bochim, and Gilgal is an important place. Um, I would just say when you're reading Judges, those maps in the back of your Bible are a good reference. <laughs> it's good to learn those the stuff. But Gilgal is the place where God entered into a covenant relationship with Joshua right before They took Joshua and the nation of Israel right before they took Jericho. It's the place where the commander of the Lord's army showed up with the sword and said, and Joshua went up to him and said, are you for us or against us? And he said, neither. And so I don't think it's a a strange connection to to think that this, this is probably the same messenger, the same commander of the Lord's army coming from Gilgal to this place called Bochim And and the idea is this, Gilgal is the place where God had forgiven the sin of Israel, that generation. The place where their faith became real, when God, for that generation, entered into a relationship with them. So think about it this way, Gilgal is the place you got converted. And Bochim is the place you are now after a humiliating, crashing failure, right? So for me, it would be this messenger of the Lord coming from Houghton College where my faith became real to confront me here in Boston Spa. For for Israel here, it's from Gilgal near Jericho to this place called Bochim, which is probably near Bethel. And here's what he says, speaking God's words. God's messenger speaking for God. I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall, not, shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? <laughs> God's a good counselor. He may have the sword drawn, pointing at our sin, but he comes with a question. What have you done? You know what I've said to you. You know that we have entered into this relationship by grace and you have promised to be faithful as I have been faithful to you. What have you done? And then the consequence is, I'm going to give you what you want. I'll leave you alone. I'm not going to drive these nations out. They're going to become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. And everyone wept. That's what bokeem means. That's all they remember is just a river of tears and they sacrifice to the Lord there. And so that helps. Why does it matter that Canaanites need to be kicked out in this particular place and time? It's because Israel does not have the ability to say no to other faiths. They don't have the ability to obey God's voice. They don't have the ability to not be drawn in love after other gods, after other idols, after other things. They don't have the ability to be faithful, and God knew that, and he said, cast them out because I love you spiritually. I want you to love me more than anything else. But now, since you don't obey, they're going to become traps. You think you're the slave owners now? The position's going to be swapped. You would... they're gonna ensnare you, that's the language. They're gonna trap you. You're gonna be trapped by the beliefs of your neighbors and you're gonna become like them. That's the punishment. So you can think about it this way as a church. The, it's a sad thing when the church and her morality um, looks a lot more like their unbelieving neighbors than what God has said in his word. That's when our neighbors become a trap it's hard to say follow jesus when they say well you look and act just like me so what difference does it make right. what is what is this god who are you talking about when you care and love and worship the same things i do and you don't care about his laws either right. and so here's how what the tension that you're set up for really in the whole old testament it's God has promised, I will bless you. But I also promise that I will not bless a disobedient people. Right? You have to feel the tension of verses one and then the following, uh, what, what Israel has done. It's like God is saying, you have put me in this impossible situation. I promised on the pain of death to bless you. We are in a covenant relationship. I have been faithful to you. But I also warned you that I will not bless the disobedient people. Which is God saying, I want to bless you, but you don't want me. I've sworn to give you this land as an eternal inheritance, but I've also sworn not to give this land to a people who are going to spoil it, defile it, who's going to treat it the same way their neighbors. So what do I do with you now? You're gonna be ensnared. I'm gonna give you up to the desires of your own heart. Let me know how that works for you without me. And so I can put the tension differently. God promised to dwell with his people forever, like a groom promising to live with his bride. I'll betroth you to me forever, but I also warned you if you are not faithful, this is not gonna end well. And how can I stay faithful to you when I know you will be unfaithful with your neighbors? That's the tension. Judges is setting you up for for Hosea and that tragic story because God's people are hell-bent on running away. And yet God's desire is to bless them. And that's the most amazing thing in Judges. Hosea 11, Israel, how can I give you up to punishment? How can I treat you like Adama and Zeboim, these cities that were nuked like Sodom and Gomorrah? How can I treat you like somebody I don't love when everything in me, my heart is recoiling with compassion, I want to bless you, but you are disobedient. And everybody just saw their sin and cried. And clearly in the trajectory of the book, they were just sad because God was not going to help them anymore. They didn't change. And that tension really isn't resolved until Jesus shows up. And this is, this is the hope for failures. Right? And I think this is, this is really helpful and this is where we're going to end. We know what it's like to be where Israel is. We, I've heard some of your stories and some of you have stories that are hard to share where you just remember your failure. You know Bokim, where you've been caught. Or maybe you confessed it. But generally we get caught when we're failed. And we're just so crushed with guilt and shame and we don't know what to do. And this is the easiest part of repentance. This is hard to say and hard to hear, but the easiest part of repentance is just being sad that I screwed up, that I hurt somebody, that I didn't do what I thought I was better at because I thought I was awesome and turns out I'm not. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, he was a pastor in London during World War II, it's really easy to make a Welshman cry, he's Welsh, but to change his heart, that requires an earth-shattering earthquake a stone-shattering earthquake and so you're left with how will god bless us i'm a moral failure (laughs) i haven't obeyed god's voice perfectly how's god going to bless me what is the hope for that the weak the outsider the moral failure those who are prone to wander keep getting ourselves in trouble and the answer is the messenger of the Lord who comes, not here, uh, but in the New Testament, his name is Jesus, the commander of the Lord's army, who comes alongside us, he points the sword and said, you are guilty, but then God takes that sword of judgment and drives it into his heart. He's crucified for our sins. And that this is what's so amazing. Is Jesus' teaching starts with repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying, Weep for your sins, but you will be welcomed in. And the very first words we get about life with God through faith in Jesus begins with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Inheritance language. That right. so the moment you are in through faith with Jesus, you are blessed. You have the kingdom of heaven. You have this the inheritance that Israel couldn't earn on their own. Jesus earned it for you. And the only cost is for you to confess, I am poor in spirit. I have nothing to contribute. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's that's hope for failures. this tension isn't resolved i mean god stays faithful and faithful and the longer the old testament goes you wonder why would god give a rip about these people they are horrible (laughs) you know they they act like pharaoh they act like babylon there's injustice the poor are trampled on and we're going to get into this i mean there's some ugly stuff and when you get to jesus he says it's so bad my people are so bad i had to die for them but I wanted to bless them so bad I was willing to die for them. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And the gift of Jesus, King Jesus, it was promised, is now that you are in the kingdom by faith, following Jesus, you don't go to war against your neighbors, you go to war against your sin. And he doesn't leave you alone, he gives you a helper. The spirit of Jesus (laughs) to go to war. That the, the lion of the tribe of Judah brings in the weak, the outsider, the moral failure, and says, here, here's how I won. Resurrection power. I will be with you until the end of the age. I will not leave you alone. I love you too much to leave you as you are. Now go to war, follow me. But go to war against your own heart. And by the way, bring your family along with you. You can't do it alone. (laughs) That's what this points to. We have a messenger from Yahweh, the Lord himself, who relieves that tension of God's desire to bless imperfect children. And now he says, I want you to listen to Jesus' voice. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Learn from him. Follow his teaching because you are saved by grace. (laughs) That is good news. You know, so what do you do when you're confessed and faced with your failure? Don't get back on the treadmill like Israel of just sacrificing. You know, God, I'll I'll pray harder. I'll try harder. You know, it's called to run to the cross. um, To show, to, to see and experience where God shows you that you are not worthy to be saved, but he saved you anyway. And so what this does is sets God's people up. for This is the life of faith. You're going to have a thorn in the flesh, if I could use that language. Paul had it. You will not get past your weakness. The way of the Christian life is weakness, to ask for help. So call out, trusting Jesus, this Jesus who comes and dries your eyes, gives you the church so that we can be changed together. Do you know what that looks like? That, that's my goal this year as your pastor uh, is that we would learn how to more intimately follow Jesus together, to go to war against this thing that keeps raising its ugly head called sin. That whether you are a teenager, you know, that's why you're given families. It's, we're, we're called not to do this alone. That's what the church is for. And the one certain thing we have now in Christ is God's steadfast love and that in Christ he loves his people too much. To leave you alone. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, there, there is a lot of, of violence here, and I pray you would give us the wisdom to know how to use that violent language to go on the offensive against these things that hold us back. So Jesus, we, we know we need to change, and so I pray you would give us the, the Holy Spirit-given ability and hu- humility to ask for help and so we thank you for hope church the love we have for another one another and i pray this would continue to be a place where outsiders can come in and say look at how they love one another who is this jesus who is among them so i do pray father that you would help us smell like our savior that the aroma of christ would be an aroma of life for those who have eternal life and uh, would leave those who smell death to repentance